This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. All this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome everyone to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and with me as ever is Tony Black. Hello Duncan, how are you this uh, this fine evening? I'm not bad, how are you? Good, good. I'm uh, I'm very excited to be talking the Trek we're talking uh, today because I think we've uh, we've hit up on a really really interesting topic for this one, which covers sort of a little bit of the kind of things we've been talking about in in previous episodes. But um, I think it, I'm quite excited to get more into the into the real world, you know, elements behind behind some of the uh, Star Trek greats. So this is going to be a good one, I think. No pressure then. <laughs> well, um, I agree. I agree. I mean, I, we're not just looking at kind of literary inspiration. We're not just looking at historical inspiration in terms of the history that people have read. We're actually, we're, what we're going to be looking at today is kind of history as it's lived through by some of the key people. So just to, to clue the listeners into to what on earth we're going on about, basically this episode is going to be about the Second World War in the original series. And you might think that's a that's a strange topic. You might sort of think Second World War, Star Trek, the obvious place to go with would be Deep Space Nine, maybe Voyager. There's quite a lot of uh, Voyager episodes that kind of touched on the Second World War. But really what we're looking at is is more the, the people themselves. The, the original series, of course, happened only, you know, 20-odd years after the end of the Second World War. Um, and for a lot of the people working on that show, both the cast and uh, on the, um, the crew, the creative side, had actually served in the Second World War and brought those experiences with them. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of those people and the, the wartime experiences that we that they had. So I think probably the best place to start really is, uh, you know, is with Mr. Star Trek himself, Gene Roddenberry. Do you want to talk to us a bit, Tony, about, about Gene's war service and, and what happened there? You, you might think that, that Gene Roddenberry would have been uh, a, more, a, a soldier in the, in the sense of, of certain of the other cast, but he was, um, he was actually more of a pilot. And uh, he was, during the, um, the war, he was uh, commissioned as a second lieutenant. And he... Um, obtained a pilot's, pilot's license through the United States Army Air Corps, um, the civilian pilot training program. And he enlisted with the USAAC in uh, 1941, around the time of Pearl Harbor, actually. It was December 1941, so it would have been around the time that the Americans were starting to enter the war. So it was quite a, a key moment, really, when he, when he came into it. Um, and then he was commissioned in August of the following year. And there's, there's, a, there's an interesting factor about Roddenberry service that... I think possibly, you know, informs a lot of the kind of stories he would tell or, or the kind of path he took to getting towards Star Trek because there was quite a quite a tragic accident that he was involved in when he was a pilot. Uh, he was posted to Bellows Field in um, Oahu and he joined the th- 394th Bomb Squadron, 5th Bombardment Group. It was 1943, August 1943, about a year after he got his second lieutenant commission and he was flying uh, with several other men, and he was trying to fly out of Espirito, San- Espiritu Santo. But he overshot the runway when he was piloting, impacted trees, crushed the nose, started a fire, and two men died. There was an official report, obviously, and Roddenberry was cleared of any responsibility. But even though he spent the remainder of his military career in the States, he then became a plane crash investigator. Later on, he was involved in a, a further plane crash. But he, he, was distinct- he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross... But he he obviously was involved, you know, that's one of the things I think that probably marked his service during the war, being involved in this accident where he may well have, you know, experienced an element of, of real sort of survivor's guilt or guilt at having, you know, felt responsible for the for the deaths of these men. 
And I, I do, as, as I was finding out about this, I was wondering, you know, did an experience like that and his subsequent, you know, he obviously piloting, flying, there are obviously correlations to the idea of it, discovering new places, flying off to different, in Star Trek's case, worlds. Did he, was he marked by this and did it sort of inform in his, in his writing some of the, some of the tales or some of the, the stories he wanted to tell really as he grew older? I think it must have informed. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking both, you know, both Captains Kirk and Picard go through quite um, gruelling uh, court-martial experiences, don't they? You know, having lost their... Well, in Picard's case, having lost his ship. In Kirk's case, having lost a member of his crew. And, you know, for Roddenberry, I mean, he was completely exonerated by the investigation. They, they said that basically he'd done everything he should have done. But some of his comrades felt differently. He was already, you know, in some ways, although he was a very charismatic guy and, and particularly with the ladies, very, you know, gregarious and uh, uh, charming man. He was also in some ways a bit of a loner with the other uh, with the other crew and the other pilots and so on. They, they felt he was a bit of an intellectual. He was given to quoting Shakespeare at them. It, uh, he didn't always endear himself to them. And I think after this accident in which two people were killed, it, it seems like they slightly, they definitely, you know, some of them, they blamed him and they slightly shunned him for it. And really that was kind of right at the end of his, um, you know, real military career out in the field. And it was after that, that he sort of got sent back to America quite, quite soon after and, and moved into this slightly different role investigating plane crashes. He, he seems to have been a man who survived quite a few plane crashes. I mean, he was involved in that one that you, that you mentioned on the runway my understanding, by the way, was that they they hadn't actually taken off. It was like it was a, a launch that failed, and that they overshot the runway rather than than it being something that happened in the air. But um, there was that one. There was obviously the famous one that we know about um, in his civilian career on the Pan Am flight, which has been popularised recently by that online cartoon, the Oatmeal cartoon. An incredible story, really. This was in 1947, um, and he was on a plane that went down, and many people died, but he and, and other members of the crew survived in the desert for some time and you know, eventually got through it. it. It does strike me, in Star Trek, I've always thought it's surprising how many shuttlecraft accidents end with, you know, the, the shuttle basically kind of totaled, but everyone is broadly speaking in one piece. And, you know, I've always sort of thought, you know, is, is that really plausible that a spaceship comes down to land on a planet and uh, and that's a kind of survivable incident? But um, maybe that owes something to, to Roddenberry's experience of, of getting through these these plane crashes in one piece. Well, yeah, possibly. And it, it, it's, it could be... For, you know, like you say, further, you know, involved in his in his psychology of, of of everything going forward. He did he did fly a lot of missions though. He flew eighty nine combat missions during the war in the army air forces. So you know, a lot a lot of that could have inspired, you know, his his interest in in some of the more you know galactic sort of adventure. You know, a, a space not space battles in in the sixties show was wasn't quite as as they ended up becoming later on in Star Trek. But you know, there were episodes you know where it was a uh, you know two opposing forces like balance of terror say in you know in the 60s show where you've got a, a, a enemy commander and a ship and you've got you know that that kind of su- submarine battling space i suppose in in some some respects so there, there could have been that dogfight element you know and that you know that factor towards what roddenberry was doing in the war which again could have inspired certain elements of star trek even though star trek wasn't the the show akin to something like star wars that was all about, much more about space battles and, and that kind of thing. It, you know, that obviously isn't the heart of Star Trek, but it could have been a factor. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, one of the things that struck me reading a bit about Roddenberry's military career and, and, and the planes that he flew, he was he was flying these B-17 bombers, which were, I think, a, a kind of, uh, a bit like, you, you know, we, we know about the Flying Fortress bombers, the same, same kind of principle. Um, so there, there would be quite a large crew, it'd be quite a large plane compared to, you, you know, maybe when we think about, say, the Battle of Britain or something, quite small fighter planes or whatever. These were big bombers with, with you know, a decent number of people on board. And they were also, apparently, the B-17 was a very tough aircraft craft basically it could take quite a punishing without going down so and in some ways that sort of reminds me of, of, of the kind of situations that you see in star trek i mean i sort of think when you think about kind of aerial fighting in the second world war you kind of think of a plane that it, it's about you, you know if you hit it then that's it. It, it it drops from the sky whereas these things were kind of designed to to take a bit of a bashing and you know and hopefully keep on flying and, and get you back home again and they did have some some scary encounters in there i mean there was one mission that roddenberry flew and they were they they, they saw a, a japanese kind of spotter plane basically 
that's kind of tailing them and reporting where they were and then suddenly they were intercepted by these Japanese fighters and these these bombers they'd go on their sorties they had no fighter escort of their own so they didn't really have I mean they had some guns but they didn't have they weren't very well equipped to defend themselves and interestingly the the course of action they took to get away from these fighters was that Roddenberry apparently flew the plane into a bank of clouds which is very much kind of what you would think of as a sort of star trek solution to i mean we were talking last week about the wrath of khan and the mutara nebula and and whether that sort of ties into ideas about submarine warfare or or ancient ship battles where you've got clouds and fog and all these sort of things but here is sort of almost another way of looking at those those kind of battles a, a situation where you're trying to get out of the clear of empty space and into somewhere where it's a bit murky and and you know you can't necessarily be spotted so they they had that quite you know terrifying experience and and survived it and and other missions as well that they that extraordinarily they survived they flew through a typhoon at one point uh and were hurled around in the inside of this plane and and just about managed to get through the other side and and get the plane home again so certainly i guess roddenberry was someone who uh you know he wasn't just in the forces and uh, and he sat behind a desk or whatever he was he was doing pretty dangerous uh you know pretty serious kind of frontline action and in this quite kind of heroic mold as well i mean the pilots you, you know there's a there's a real charm and a real charisma there's something of the kind of captain kirk about that i think uh you know risk is our business that's kind of what they were doing and for Roddenberry I think the kind of the there was a sexual dimension to that as well insofar as you know he would make the most he didn't hang out with the other guys in his crew very much he would make the most of you know going around and and chatting up the women that he could find and and sort of playing the pilot card you know I'm the heroic pilot and uh kind of charming them that way he was actually married at the time but apparently a lot of the men that he served with when they found this out they were astonished they had they they, it hadn't crossed their mind that this man might be married because he was so often you know having dalliances with various different women that he encountered i think he would have appreciated the the character of tom paris in voyager wouldn't he (laughs) yeah exactly exactly (laughs) flirty fly boy basically that was absolutely was yeah yeah fly boy yeah yeah, totally and that's it you know and there are numerous characters who you know Roddenberry, not just obviously Kirk in 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 his different you know ways, but there were numerous characters that would crop up in the original series and the early seasons of Next Generation, like things things like um in the outrageous Akona, you know the that that, that kind of really sort of Rue kind of character, you know the charmer, you know and and then, you know it extends to characters like Riker as well, you know it goes all the way through to those those, those maybe it's a little bit of wish fulfillment on Roddenberry's part, you know these these space. These spacemen flyboys are all that. Again, it's it's that kind of, you know, boy's own kind of flirtatious pilot, you know, life that he's recreated and reliving through Star Trek. Absolutely. Well, and I think in Star Trek you see again and again there is this kind of the, the pilot has a sort of special place in a way. I mean, I'm thinking of both Picard and Riker, although they're kind of on the command track. At various points, it's kind of pointed out to us that they are highly skilled pilots. You know, if, if the if it comes to crunch time, there's the one. Episode, isn't there where picard takes the helm because he wants to take responsibility and there's no question that he's you know a highly skilled pilot and perfectly capable of flying the ship and um in chain of command there's a situation where Riker is basically the captain who's taken over is forced to go to him because he needs the best pilot that he can get and that that actually is is not whoever's you know operating the helm day by day it's Riker. he's the best pilot on the ship so there's this kind of sense that even though they've moved beyond the act of actually piloting the ship, you know, in a way akin to piloting a plane and moved into this sort of uh, slightly more, well, not hands-off, but a a slightly a level back, a kind of um, command level, a kind of more managerial level, that they still do have this, you know, what's represented as almost a kind of, I'm thinking of Tom Paris in particular, it's, it's a kind of, it's not just a skill, it's kind of a gift, is the way that it's represented, isn't it? If you think of Paris in Voyager, it's, you know, he's he's really, at the beginning of the show, he's a bit of a wastrel, he's a bit of a, a troublemaker, but he has this kind of gift that can't be taught, um, and, and therefore he's the guy that they've got to go to, because no one else can do it. So I suppose all through Star Trek, in a way, we see that kind of sort of fetish of the pilot in a way and the, and the kind of that they've got something special about them and i suppose that ties into this idea of this kind of charisma this sex appeal this this whole uh aura that the pilots have around them and that that Roddenberry was familiar with himself yeah absolutely i think i think there's a lot of truth to that his wartime stories is quite different from that of he one of his main actors in the show james Doohan, uh who uh 
obviously played Scotty, the legendary Scotty. Why don't you tell us a little bit about his wartime journey, Duncan? Because it's a very different kind of story, isn't it? It is absolutely a very different story. Yeah, James Dewan, actually, um, we can read quite a lot about his war experiences because he wrote a really fantastic memoir um, with uh, Peter David, the Star Trek novelist. It's a really great book. Both you and I uh, were struggling to get hold of a copy in time for this recording, and we were really... Our bacon was saved by... Um, I hope this is how you pronounce your name, Dave Kalari on the, the Babel conference. Um, we put out a shout out uh, saying that we can't get hold of this book. It's out of print. Can anyone help us? And it's a fascinating story. I'd really recommend it. Um, and he, he tells the story of his, of his service in the Royal Canadian Artillery, um, starting as a gunner. A, a lot of that experience, um, he, he came over to England, basically. Uh, he said basically he was bored. He was waiting around a lot of the time. He said we were stuck going to pubs, eating fish and chips, drinking warm beer, uh, and, and really not seeing any service and he started to get quite frustrated he was you know year in year out he, he'd gradually get sort of promoted a bit here and there uh, but really he hadn't seen any action he hadn't done anything and he was feeling a bit frustrated by it in a sense um w- one thing that he did experience while he was stationed in england though was uh he says this is where he um met the inspiration for scotty he was um sharing some quarters in Catterick in Yorkshire with a man called Andrew who came from Aberdeen. And he said that, to begin with, he literally couldn't understand a word this guy was saying, but he he gradually got his ear into the accent and, and started uh, to sort of appreciate it and started to learn how to mimic it himself. And he claims that in the early years of Star Trek, actually, he, he started off trying to do Scotty with a, a really accurate uh, recreation of this guy's Aberdeen accent. But basically, Gene Roddenberry and the other executives said to him, look, you can't do that. No one will understand a word you're saying. You've got to, you've got to pull the accent back a bit. So that was sort of James Stewart's excuse for why Scotty's accent uh, in the original series maybe not the most accurate uh, Scottish accent. But... Um, that it was a kind of compromise designed to appeal to the American audience. That being said, I'll tell you what, though, about that. I, I, I never knew he was Canadian till I was much, much older than a kid. I, I, I did think he was Scottish for years and years and years, and then when I read he was Canadian, I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> genuine... So you know, maybe it was just me having a bit of tin ear for, like, you know, um, Scottish accents or whatever, even though I'm, I am part Scottish myself, so that's not very good. It's, <laughs> it's yeah, I, he, did, he did a good job despite that, I think. Well, it's quite a sort of... It, I don't know. I think there is a sort of a, a slightly kind of uh, an American idea of a Scottish accent. Is my I'm thinking of like Sc- Scrooge McDuck as well. It's another <laughs> kind of version of that. There's a sort of, and I suppose I mean I don't know. You know, I grew up in London. I mean, uh, if that's what you sort of see and hear on TV or whatever, you kind of accept that that's that maybe that's that's reasonable. I don't know what we, we should ask Lee Hutchison what he makes of uh, of, of James Dewan's accent because obviously Simon Pegg's accent is 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 quite different in a sense. Is is a, a, you know maybe a more maybe a bit more realistic at least where whereas um james Dewan's is quite a sort of uh, there's, there's something quite kind of hollywood about it do you know what i mean there's something quite sort of it's a it's a it's a bit like a mask somehow but anyway he obviously is a guy with a great facility for accents he he perfected a lot of other accents while he was here and he talks quite a bit about his voice and kind of picking up different voices and so on which obviously is something that carries through to his star trek career i'm thinking of the animated series in particular but also in um in the original series he 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 played at least one other voice role i think didn't he and and his voice was obviously very important to him as an actor and he he tells this story actually that he he, he was sent for officer training and and so he was commissioned as a, a lieutenant or, or a lieutenant i suppose i don't know if i don't know how the canadians pronounce that we call it a lieutenant and field marshal montgomery came to inspect the troops and uh James Dewan had to basically sort of call them all to attention. So he, he bellowed out to them and they all uh, snapped to attention. And he said Montgomery walked down the aisle and said, good voice. And that was a great, you, you know, for him, that was kind of the highest praise in a sense was that this, uh, this field marshal had complimented him on on his voice. He, he did do, and I'm trying to recall now the the other accent he did. I don't, I can't remember what it is now, but I know he did more. So it, he, he had a big career in radio as well before he did Star Trek. During the 40s, he did, he did thousands of radio plays. So I think that was that was one of his ways into act, into acting after the war. So I think he obviously had this facility, didn't he, to sort of mimic and to bring on these these voices. And it, it's interesting how that was forged through his experiences as a soldier and through meeting all these different people. So you know, and, and I think one of the big things with him as as a, as a performer as Scotty is that he managed to, even if his accent wasn't necessarily traditional and accurate. He managed to, like you say, in a Hollywood kind of way, an American-style kind of way, he managed to get across the feel of a Scotsman, even if it is a bit cliche. You know, he did get across that level 
he brought that character out, even given the fact he didn't really have a lot to do or, or always, you know, in the episodes. But he still managed to make that distinctive mark. So it's, it's again, it's that whole thing of picking up from real-life experience and taking that real-life experience into what you do as an artist. And, I mean, I, I suppose that's, you know, that's one thing that people you know do find with the military you get to, you know travel the world experience new things and so on i mean he said he'd never been on a boat before until he uh took this long voyage to liverpool to to go and train in england so you know it's a for a young man it's it's kind of an eye-opening experience the other thing for james doing is he was getting away from a, a family situation that was was very difficult his father was quite violent and unpleasant so there was an element of kind of you know he was sort of joining the forces and he was getting away from all that and and starting to find a way to kind of make his own mark in the world which i suppose is why there was this real frustration for him and for a lot of soldiers at the time that they weren't being used you know basically they were biding their time waiting for this you know waiting for d-day waiting for this event that everyone knew was on the horizon but it just seemed to keep being uh sort of put off and put off and put off and they were never quite sure when it was going to happen and then of course it did happen and you know he says in the book it's quite kind of ironic in a way that he he'd been in the forces for about five years really by the time he saw his first real engagement and that engagement was d-day you know the biggest engagement of the war pretty much the most crucial crucial moment of the war so should we talk a little bit about about james doing's d-day experiences because those are the kind of that's the the real heart of his war story i suppose that's that's the one that we see you, you know reposted again and again on the internet um and and really told this quite remarkable story of what happened to him yeah obviously it was d-day uh, which as most people will know is the allied invasion of france on june the 6th 1944 so you had the british the americans and the canadians each being assigned areas in of the Normandy beaches in order to you know begin this invasion, so the Canadian element relocated an area, which and the, there's a few French names coming up here that I'm going to talk about, so I may may hash these up pronounce wise. So I apologise if there are any French listeners, which there may be, um, or French Canadian listeners. The Canadians were allocated an area from a village called Corsi, Corsu, Corse. I've probably got that wrong. All the way to a place called Saint Aubin sur Mer, which was codenamed Juno Beach. And uh, Duin's division was to secure the, the Khan Bayou Road and take the Karpike Airport, which was west of Khan. So it was it was a difficult it was a difficult mission because you had two battalions. You had the German seven seven hundred sixteenth Infantry Division, and there were troops from the twenty first Panzer Division. So they they were holed up near Khan, and they'd strewn the Germans had strewn the beaches with anti tank mines. So they were really not making this easy for them, even though the the Allies had prepared before. Planes had blasted the German positions. The, the idea was that the Canadians wouldn't be visible as they were going through. But it didn't quite go to plan. So the, the, the bombardment from the air by the Allies didn't quite happen in the way they wanted to. There was bad weather. Visibility wasn't very good. The pilots didn't quite get their targets right. So the coastal defences at Juneau weren't really taken, taken care of. The landings were delayed as well due to high waves and bad weather. After the sun had risen on June the 6th, there was no cover of darkness by the time they landed. So it was it was difficult. So James Doohan was was pretty worried. You know, the, he was he was scared of being at sea. He even said later, after a long time after, he said, we were more afraid of drowning than we were of the Germans. <laughs> and, and many men Jeez. did drown on that day. I mean, mm. you, you know, trying to get into the beach, especially because they were laden down with equipment and so on. Um, and, the you, you know, the, the conditions were bad. A lot of men didn't even make it ashore, you know, really tragically didn't even kind of get a start in the fight and, and then you know i mean if you've seen saving private ryan you you know the kind of situation that james doing was going into you know they were being shot at there were shells going off all over the place i mean they're, they're trying to get a relatively short distance up the beach but um he says in his book you know that i think it's he says it's that 75 yards could have been 7500 yards um and the sand by this point had been so you know blown apart and the water had got all over it and so on it, it was it was a uh, thick kind of you know muddy consistency almost they were kind of trying to to wade through the beach in a sense he said it was like walking through snow so laden down with equipment you know being shot at a really terrible situation to be in and a, a bit of a miracle to be honest that actually he and he was in charge of 33 i mean he was in charge of more men generally but he was with a, a, a small unit of 33 uh, men all of them were specialists of various kinds uh, that he was kind of immediately commanding on that day and actually they all managed to get through safely in one piece and make it to the sand dunes and to some kind of cover you know without being hit by the germans which was quite remarkable frankly and, and obviously as we know a lot of 
men weren't that lucky that day. You know, there were terrible rate of casualties. But but they managed to get through. So they, they got through this first experience of battle. They got through in one piece. But then... Um, what happened was so there was a kind of period of calm and and then one of the more interesting incidents in James Dewan's story comes up a little bit later which was that they'd had a period of calm and then suddenly they started being shot at and they couldn't work out you know where were the bullets coming from the, the what was going on um so he took a pair of binoculars and he had a look around and he managed to see a couple of Germans in a tower uh, who were shooting a machine gun. Um, and so he told one of his men, I- I'll keep an eye on them through the binoculars. You take a shot at them, see if you can, can take them out, basically, these Germans. And his friend had a go um, and, and didn't manage to do it. You know, he could see he wasn't, he wasn't hitting. The Germans didn't even seem to know that he was there. I mean, they, they, I should say they, they weren't targeting James Dewan's group specifically they were they were kind of firing all over the place but he'd identified that that was that was where the bullets were coming from so that's so he was keen to to take them out and he realized that the rifle the guy was using was one that he knew well he knew he was a good shot with it so he said to him look i tell you what you take the binoculars and i'll take the rifle and, and i'll take the shot and he'd never you know he was saying basically he'd, he'd been in the in the forces for five years he'd never used a weapon against someone before he'd never tried to kill someone before so it was a you know quite a, a bridge to cross in a sense but um but he talks about it in his memoir and he said basically you know that was the job you had to do the job you, you couldn't question it so he did he 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 took the first shot missed the second shot one of the germans went down he took a third shot the other german went down and he thought to himself you know have i killed them are they wounded are they dead but ultimately the machine gun stopped firing and, and that was his job and he couldn't really dwell on that anymore but obviously you know an experience like that is going to affect you he, he'd gone into the forces and he says because he'd had this experience with this uh, quite abusive father um he'd actually gone into the signal corps to begin with because he didn't really want to be in a position where he was having to kill people he wanted to sort of do the like, more sort of support role uh, more kind of logistical role you, you know still still doing important work but not literally on the front line uh, killing people and and yet he'd come to this situation, that was the job he had to do, and he most likely had killed these two men. Yeah, and it must have been quite a, yeah, it must have been quite a shock, really, that he was, you know, that he was put in that position. But, he, you know, it, it's it's that kind of thing, you have to do it, you know, when you're in the middle of that situation, you have to, you have to do it. Um, so these were his first two kills in the entire war, so it, it was, yeah, it was it was quite quite a big moment for him, really. It got even more intense for him, though, <laughs> than this, because uh, in the end, there, there were they, they managed to clear a lot of the German contingent out. As you said, there was this level of calm that had set up on Juneau Beach, and there were lots of lots of Canadians there, and it would have seemed like they had a, re- a bit of respite, but it was it was evening, it was around 11.20, and he was uh, having a cigarette, James Doom was having a cigarette, and... Uh, as he t- as he says it, he finished the cigarette, patted the silver cigarette cigarette case that uh, he kept in his breast pocket. His brother had given him it as a good luck charm, so it was quite a symbolic thing for him. As he was heading back, then a few minutes later from his cigarette break, he was shot six times. Four bullets slammed into his leg. One whacked him in the chest, and the sixth took off his right middle finger, which is pretty impressive. Didn't he get shot more than once? in the finger as well he claims he could see three the the, the marks from three bullets in his I, I don't quite understand how that's possible i don't understand how three bullets can hit one finger and, and <laughs> there's any finger left but i don't know that's that's what he says anyway he, he said he didn't quite realize that at first he just felt he'd been sort of shoved he didn't even realize he'd been shot and even when he saw his you know bleeding finger he didn't really realize that he, he didn't realize he'd been shot in the leg until he got to the you, you know field medic and, and they were patching him up and they they patched up the finger and, and then he was going to go off and you know kind of go back to work basically and they said oh hang on you know um just hold on a minute you, you you've been shot in your leg as well and he was astounded he hadn't even noticed uh until they started pulling <laughs> bullets out of his leg so you know obviously he was a bit sort of you know knocked for six by it and so after that obviously he had to be you know he had to be um taken back to to hospital to go back to hospital in england they had to the, the finger basically they they started by just amputating the very end of the finger but then what they found was that the when they x-rayed it the the sort of joints in the the middle of the finger all the bones were shattered and he he had no control over the finger it was kind of stuck rigid so basically they said to him look um either we can kind of amputate the rest of the finger or or we can leave it but but essentially he'd be going around you know giving people the finger all the time because he he couldn't ever it was permanently straightened what was left of his finger so he describes i mean it's quite funny his memoir he's got a great sense of humor 
so he describes this kind of real dilemma what would i you know what do i rather I'd rather lose the finger or, or go around kind of insulting people with this rude gesture everywhere i go and in the end he decided that it'd be better to 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 amputate it and to, to lose the rest of the finger and, and there are uh, i believe episodes of the original series where you can see i mean they obviously they try their best to hide this but there are you know moments if you kind of freeze frame it where you you can see his uh, his missing finger in the shot um because it's it kind of snuck in one way or another well he, he was lucky that that's all he lost because in in the end it was his brother's cigarette case that saved his life because the bullet that was that hit him in the chest hit that cigarette case um, he did joke that it was the only time being a smoker saved his life. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's a real. It's it's such a it's such a sort of cliche that the life saved by a cigarette case. But you know, it did it, it, seemingly it did happen to a lot of people. Um, and I think he was aware of how how close he'd come to you know to dying, obviously. And, and he describes as well this quite moving description of. Um, the first real, you, you know, we talked about the, this, this first encounter of, of killing the German soldiers. He also saw that day his first, you know, really gruesome casualty of war. Uh, you know, another one of the Canadians, this guy who who was basically on the verge of death. He, he said his his insides were falling out of him. Basically, he'd been dosed up on morphine, so he wasn't he wasn't in pain. He was just sort of staring into the distance. And he said he looked at him and he just thought, you know, that could have been me. It could so easily have been me. But he said that, again, that was something that he just had to kind of shut down those thoughts, not really dwell on that at the time and, and kind of, you know, get on with the job because really you couldn't, you couldn't go there. But, you know, writing the book, he says that even, you know, however many decades later, he could still see that man vividly, you know, that, that kind of memory of that sort of horror never left him. And I suppose this is the sort of thing that, that maybe we, you know, it's useful to bear in mind when you talk about Roddenberry or you talk about James Dillon or, or the people who've served in the war and have, have seen these awful things, that when they then come to something like Star Trek, which is quite a kind of, for the most part, quite a sort of light entertainment, particularly the original series, um, and, you know, it deals with battle and it deals with war and wounds and death and so on, but in a, in a you know, generally not particularly upsetting way, that obviously it informs that if you've had those experiences, let alone it informs you know your views on war your views on the the chain of command i mean roddenberry i know had some experiences in his service where uh, which sort of demonstrated flaws in the chain of command and if you think of the original series and all the badmirals and commodores and you, you know all these sort of uh, mistakes being made further up the chain and, and not trusting the guy on the ground and not trusting the captain who knows what he's talking about you know those kind of stories would be informed by by some of those experiences by you know by seeing men lose their lives because someone higher up the chain of command has, has made a stupid decision or has, has not listened to advice from someone who knows what they're talking about that, that is actually quite a recurring trope in many in many star trek series isn't it and, and going on you know there are a lot of characters that you do find who do come in with rank you know and status and they do they are flawed or they are corrupt or they are you know wrong about things and they they come and they don't like you say they don't trust the men on the ground it, it, it's interesting it, it is a recurring thing even beyond roddenberry's death you know it, it it's it's something that's a lot in star trek a lot of emphasis is placed on being able to trust the the people on the ground, the captains, the crew, being able to trust these people who are out there on the front line serving, seeing everything up close. So that probably was informed by these kind of experiences. There, there were more people involved in um, in wartime experiences, though, in uh, the original Star Trek, wasn't there? There was um, DeForest Kelly was one, Gene Kuhn. There were a few uh, few different people, weren't there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to say, I'd love to hear if, you know, if anyone on the Babel conference has got more information on any of these stories, I'd love to hear it because um, all I was managing to find was, it's fairly brief on each of them, but just to, to run through a few of them. So DeForest Kelly served in the United States Army Air Force uh, from 1943, but he was actually assigned to a motion picture unit so he was basically working uh you know he was not on the front lines getting shot he was working on you know propaganda films training films that kind of thing so really very much in the kind of you know in the sort of hollywood in the way the kind of the way of, of, of filmmaking and, and so on all the producers the main producers on star trek all, all served in the war bob justman he was in the the u.s navy um and actually served he served as a radio man third class which was uh, you know a kind of communications role a, a bit like James Doohan being in the Signal Corps, you know, it was to, to do with communications. Gene Kuhn was a Marine. He he served from 1942, and he uh, and then he served again in the in the war in Korea. So so he'd had you know even uh, more military service than some of them. And Fred Freiberger, who was the the sort of ill-fated 
producer in the third season had actually uh, he, he was stationed uh, in England uh, like James Dewan and was actually shot down over Germany and spent two years as a prisoner of war so he'd really you know gone through the whole kind of uh, the whole sort of military experience in that way so it's kind of interesting just thinking these people working on this show they, they have this background in common uh, a lot of them have this background in common obviously the younger members of the cast you know Shatner and Nimoy uh, for example a little bit too young you know they, they would have memories of the war but they they weren't old enough to be serving so really there's this that sort of generational difference in a sense between the the men of the just slightly older generation who had you know really really been through this in quite a real way you know they've been to war and they've come back again someone like James Dewan you you know compared to the slightly younger members of the cast who who maybe have just been a little bit too young to actually experience that firsthand all of these actors and all of these you know creative forces behind Star Trek it goes on to inform elements of the series doesn't it because we're going to talk a little bit about some of the episodes which directly either directly reference the second world war or have certain parallels to some of these experiences and some of the the overarching themes of the war that cropped up in in uh, the original series one in particular one episode in particular deals quite head-on with this and that's the episode patterns of force absolutely i mean patterns of force a very very blatant allegory in a sense of of uh, of the nazi regime in the second world war i mean basically what happens is there's a, a a man it's a sort of prime directive story there's a there's a man who's been supposed to be observing this culture and instead he he's kind of basically corrupted it through we discover he's a historian and he's he's come up with, with spellbindingly stupid idea that basically if he can uh, as he sees it take take the kind of good part of, of Nazism, of fascism, i.e. like the trains running on time, the efficiency. He talks about the, the Nazi state as being the most efficient state in the world and, and, and kind of keep away all the brutality and oppression and, and murder and all, all the kind of nasty sides of it. Then he sort of feels he can create this kind of perfect society. And so he sets himself up as this Fuhrer. And it's very much this planet, you, you know, in the kind of original series way that, you know, they go to a planet and that they all look like humans and they dress like humans and so on. You've basically got this whole planet uh, dressed up as Nazis, and the, and the, the Nazis are in a conflict with another group of people who are very much uh, sort of identified with the Jews. They're they're called they're, their planet is called Zion, i.e. Zion. They have very biblical Jewish names, Abram and Esau, i.e. Abraham and Isaac. You know, and there's discussion about the way they're being treated, about their oppression, and about this final solution of of dealing with them. It's really quite shocking in a way you know watching it now in in fact it was banned in germany until the 90s they they wouldn't show it on german tv Uh, obviously because of you know the the specific visuals of nazis but also the fact that spark towards the end actually shows an element of not respect but certain appreciation for what the character of john john gill who's kirk's um professor at the academy at the academy who then becomes the Fuhrer in inverted commas some sort of uh, level of of admiration for what he's attempting to do you know and, and attempting to he says you know it, they are they it is the most efficient model of government and the german the germans wouldn't allow that to be broadcast for, for decades and it's to hear spock say that is i mean it's it's obviously there's not any anti-semitism going on or any you know leanings towards fascism not at all you know none, none, nothing in this story is about promoting fascism or about suggesting that that the idea of the Nazi ideal is right. It, it, in fact, the, rather the country. But it, hearing it is quite remarkable coming from a character such as Spock and coming from a show which is only, you know, just over 20 years removed from the war. It feels like, in a way, the writers and Roddenberry trying to figure out a way to make, in some respects, make what happened more palatable in its own way and make what happened have more of an actual reason beyond genocide and madness and horror and trying to figure out what is the ultimate building blocks behind what became fascism you know i think spot mentions national socialism you know and if you if you take it to the to, to the political you know theoretic extremes socialism is uh, removed from fascism fascism is the ultimate expression of of, of that in a way the idea of a socialist, and it goes obviously towards communism as well, the idea toward, of a socialist I- idea isn't one made up of, of brutality and death and murder and genocide. 
So it's, it feels like they're, they're trying to work that out in this episode. It, it is. I mean, definitely, I suppose there's a, a controversial aspect to it. And like you said, it was banned in Germany until, you know, only a few years ago, I think they first actually broadcast it on TV. And in part, I think, I mean, they have quite strict rules about about these things. But in part, I think that there's just the visual shock of seeing Kirk and Spock. You know, they both both dress up. I mean, Spock is in a Wehrmacht uniform. Uh, Kirk is in a Gestapo uniform. You, you know, they're, they're, they're both dressed up as Nazis. They have to do the nazi salute you know they have to they have to heil the fuhrer and the kind of visual iconography of that is just very shocking especially from these these characters that you know we know well and we identify with and i think for shatner and nimoy it must have been very strange as well because both of them were from jewish families i mean they were too young obviously to serve in the war but if you read um shatner's book for example he he talks about nimoy's father telling him about the holocaust and you know when it was when things were going on basically saying they're killing they're killing jews they're killing people like us and there was a real feeling, he says, you know, this could have been us. This this could have been happening to us if we'd been in a, a different situation. Both their families had come from Ukraine, you, you know, before the war. So so they were in in America, in Nimoy's case, in Boston and uh, in Canada, in Shatner's case. But but, you know, they had relatives back home. They had people they knew back home who were who were being affected by it more directly. And also they both experienced a degree of, you know, anti-Semitic bullying at school, being called names and so on. You know, they they'd experienced levels of anti-Semitism in their own lives, let alone knowing what had happened in the Holocaust and, you know, learning about the horrific things that had happened thanks to the Germans. So obviously for them, it must have been a very strange experience, you know, dressing up in these Nazi uniforms, playing along, which is kind of what they have to do in in the story in order to kind of go undercover and so on. You know, I don't know, it must have been quite, you'd think it might have been quite uncomfortable in some ways for them to be taking part in this story, which is not to say that they, you know, they shouldn't have done the story or there's, there's anything wrong with that exactly. I mean, it is an allegory. It's very, there, there are certainly elements of it that, that work quite well. It's, you know, it's quite well done in, in some ways, but... It is quite uncomfortable to watch even, you know, even for us today, there's there's a kind of shock value in it. A little bit. And it, you, you're talking about how they might have reacted to filming this. There was the, there's, there's the scene, I was thinking of that, of the scene where the, one of the Nazi characters, one of the, the um, Ecosians, I think they're called, the, the oppressors, is talking, he's suggesting Spock is inferior because of his alien features, because of his ears and things like this. And it, it is almost like a Nazi prowling around a Jew suggesting that because of you know the way the Jew stands or the way the Jew did their teeth or whatever all, all the things that they basically destroyed as part of the Jewish person you know and all the things they suggested were inferior and racially in- inferior and all these kind of things it's sort of reflected in that scene but from an, a Vulcan you know, uh, perspective and an, and an alien I mean they look like humans but they are aliens but it's that ultimate sort of you know prejudice based on how someone looks and how someone it's and seeing Nimoy, you know, he does it with the old quirk Spock eyebrow and there's the element of, but he must've been thinking at the time. Yeah, this is, this is allegory at its most potent, (laughs) really, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, well, there's the irony of course, as well that, you know, of course, when you're talking about the Vulcans, actually the Vulcans are very clearly superior, you know, physically, I mean, in that kind of Nazi, you know, way of, of, of looking at things from a sort of eugenic perspective or whatever, they're, they're, they're stronger, they're smarter, they, they have extra abilities that they have, they're, they're tougher in certain ways, you know, physically, they can withstand a lot more. And, and yet, as you say, they're, they're different, you know, and, and Spock's ears, obviously, as in many episodes, uh, are this kind of marker of difference that pick him out in a way. One of the things that, that struck me about it, though, is that, I mean, just talking about this kind of shock value of seeing them dressed up like that, I feel like in, in entertainment there is this kind of, and in our culture generally, there's something about the Nazi uniforms that is slightly kind of fetishised and that people get quite excited about. I mean, I, I found, I, I'm working at the moment on this book on the occupation of Guernsey, and I, I, when I was there, obviously, um, you know, went to museums and so on. And of course, there are uniforms in the museums, and that's one thing. But I did go to see one guy who had this sort of private collection. He wanted to show me his collection of kind of war memorabilia. And I thought, OK, fair enough. That's interesting. But actually going into his house and seeing all these kind of Nazi uniforms that he'd carefully preserved and all these, pis- you know, Nazi pistols and things, it freaked me out a bit. And I started to think, is there something a bit sinister about this? Because why is it that we're so sort of there is a kind of attraction to it and part of it is is that there was at the time i mean talking to these people who lived through the occupation there you know especially children especially boys maybe not really thinking about the broader context maybe not really thinking about the war at, at, 
and that side of it but they see these you know men in these very smart uniforms they're very well dressed they're quite aspirational figures for those people and, and they then they even start dressing up as them and trying to construct their own sort of you know cosplay basically sort of nazi cosplay was was going on uh, in the channel islands in the war but you know, which to us thinking about is sort of horrific. But at the same time, I think we do have this kind of fascination with that sort of iconography. And you see it later in Star Trek as well. You know, you see it in Voyager and the Killing Game. You see it in uh, in Enterprise. Both Bran and Braga stories, I think Bran and Braga is exactly an example of that kind of approach, which is not a million miles away from this man whose, who's, you know, private collection freaked me out, that he talked about um, doing that Voyager episode, The Killing Game, where, you know, where they had the Herogen dressed up as Nazis. And that was basically, that was the idea. That was his kind of pitch was, let's get some aliens and dress them up as Nazis and it'll look really cool. And and then and he said, basically, and then they worked on the story and they, they tried to develop a, a story that actually kind of meant something in the end. But but that was the initial idea. And I think at the end of season three of Enterprise, you see the same thing. He literally throws the same trick out. Again, we see an alien in a Nazi uniform. And it's, you know, famously, it was this kind of gesture of like, well, you know, screw, screw you guys. I'm out. <laughs> you know, basically, I'm going to set up this bizarre cliffhanger with a very, you know, like powerful final image, uh, and I have no idea and couldn't care less what kind of story you make of it. But it's literally it's kind of the same thing. Basically, it's just the the visual impact of that thing and the idea that there's something kind of cool and exciting about it. And you know, and that's not to say that those stories don't work. I mean, I think they're they're you know they're both good stories in their ways. But I do think there's this sort of slight aspect of this fascination with the the iconography of the Nazi state because it was so extreme, you know, the swastikas and the uniforms and the and the shining boots and everything that, you know, I, I do think is slightly questionable in some ways. And, and it's sort of almost played on in the episode because you have this... Um, McCoy comes is sort of being down in a rush and they have to source a uniform for him from the um, apparently the Enterprise has a costume department on board which is quite interesting because <laughs> Kirk <laughs> asks them to to call through to the uniform section and get McCoy the right uniform and he's struggling to get his boots on and so on and, and, and not really kind of uh, a sort of living up to the smart kind of Nazi look but there, there's definitely this kind of issue about is it you know is it cool to be dressed up in these uniforms however much there's a sort of you know there is a kind of thrill about it and there is a kind of power to it and so on but really when we think about it you know they represent something quite reprehensible and awful and and maybe there's something a tiny bit sort of irresponsible about that maybe they thought this far distant you know from from the war you know i mean it's not from our terms it's not very far away 20 years but maybe they thought at this point they were able to get away with making that parallel but making it very on the nose you know i mean star trek beyond that I mean, you only have to look at Deep Space Nine. That's one big, you know, Germany-Jewish parallel, you know, with Cardassians and Bajor. But they didn't, you know, they they did have similar sort of, you know, in in some respects, kind of iconography in a way. You know, the Cardassians had a very sort of Nazi way about them, but they didn't dress up like Nazis. You didn't have, like, (laughs) the same uniforms being used. it It was allegory. In this case, they actually use a visual from Earth, from, you know, the war... To, that, that you that are on human bodies, you know, like, like you mentioned, Braga later did it on aliens, but in this case, it's humans. They are alien species, but they might as well be humans, just on a different planet. So it's it's doing that for. There is an element of shock value. There is an element, I think, of them trying to you know beat you over the head with the idea, and that's why I think as an episode, it's not particularly a really good one. You know, partly because of that. I didn't when I'm watching it. I'm not thinking this is great drama. I'm thinking, okay, I get the point you're trying to make. You're making it very very explicitly, and and. While it's got some interesting, you know, like I said, the, the undercurrent of political idea in it and the, the suggestions of socialism and fascism and all this and what John Gilly's trying to do is interesting. But I think that the na- manner of the story and quite how it, how, like I say, it beats you over the head with the Nazi uniforms just makes me think that it's just, it's not, it could have been more subtle. And I know subtlety isn't a word that you associate with 60 Star Trek, but I think Star Trek learned that lesson better as the years went by, really. I mean, I, d- I don't mind it as an episode. I, I feel it, it, it loses its way a little bit in the second half somehow. But um, initially, I, I think they, they work quite well with the kind of... it. They, they do work well with the initial shock value. When uh, Kirk and Spock beam down to the planet and they, they start to realise what's going on there and they start to see some of the brutality. You know, there's a guy beaten up in the street and so on. Um, and they see the uniforms and they see the iconography and they see the, the propaganda films and so on. I feel like all the sort of setup is all is all reasonably well done and quite involving. Once it gets more into the plot and, and the resolution of the plot, which is all about 
you know, finding out what's happened to this this Federation guy and how these events have unfolded in this way, it it slightly loses me, to be honest, and it's uh, it kind of drags a little bit in the second half, maybe. It's you know, it's it's probably the most key. Uh, original series episode to actually hit you over the head with with the war and the allegory of the war and and trying to talk about that. I think the other one that that really I wanted to talk about briefly is the one of the most classic Star Trek episodes ever, the City on the Edge of, of Forever, uh, which was the Harlan Ellison written story. Which most people who've who've watched Star Trek know the story. It's simply uh, McCoy trips on some cordrazine heads off onto a planet, goes through the the Guardian of Forever, this mysterious time portal, ends up back in the 1930s and um, inadvertently saves the life of Edith Keeler, who is a character who, played by Joan Collins, who ultimately, the ripple effect of her being saved is that the, uh, the Nazis win the war. And it's then Kirk and Spock having to come back and Kirk falls in love with Edith only to discover this, only to as they're trying as they're saving McCoy, only to discover that in order for time to go on the course it should and to save every everybody, Edith has to die. It's I mean, it's a great episode with a really interesting backstory of Ellen. I mean, Harlan Ellison is a very difficult character by all by all accounts, and there's a really fascinating backstory as to the original script that was written and all kinds of things. But I think what what I find really interesting about this, besides the fact it's a great episode, is that it's talking about the idea. And it's a Star Trek episode that talks about the idea of what what if, it's a classic what if scenario, what if a pacifist had such an effect on the United States government that they didn't get involved in the war? And that's ultimately what, what happens. You know, Edith is, is a pacifist and she and her surviving, she ends up getting so far into, you know, into success that she ends up in the White House and she influences Roosevelt and says, don't go into the war. And the Americans not getting involved in the war leads to the... Nazis developing the nuclear bomb, you know, the A-bomb first and dropping it on America and, and everything's different. Everything changes. So it's it's a really interesting commentary on the idea of pacifism and the idea of what would have happened if things had gone differently in the 30s. What if a pacifist movement had got involved and actually convinced the Americans, even after something like Pearl Harbor, don't go in there, don't get involved, you know, because there's, there's – until the Americans got involved, the British and the Allies, you know, they were losing, really. You know, and, and this, is, this is the thing. It's, that was the turning point of the war, the famous turning point of the war. What would have happened if that hadn't happened? You know, and, and I think that's what I really like about this episode. It, it doesn't dwell on it massively. It's much more of a sort of a, an adventure kind of romance time travel story, really. But I like, the, I like the undercurrent of what it's trying to say there and the fact that they're thinking about the what-if scenario of, of the war and if, if things had gone differently. I mean, it's interesting. Obviously, you know, we know Harlan Ellison was very unhappy about the changes that were made to the script and so on. And I think one of the things that he wasn't happy about was this shift towards representing Edith Keeler as a, a peace activist, which I think wasn't in his original story in that way. And I suppose the issue is that there is a sort of implication of the episode. I mean... I think for most people watching the episode, the thing that grabs you is more what it's like for Kirk to make this, you know, to make this kind of sacrifice, basically to let someone die that he's fallen in love with uh, in order for history to be set right again. And to my mind, it's not so much, it's not really making a value judgment about whether she was right or wrong to be preaching pacifism or so on. And, and, and Spock says she had the right ideas, but she had them at the wrong time. So it's not exactly, it's, it, it's not an anti-pacifist message in a sense. But I think Harlan Ellison felt, because this was going on at the same time as, as Vietnam, he was involved in the anti-Vietnam war movement. I think he felt that there was a kind of implication that it was sort of allying itself with this attitude of, well, pacifism's all very well and good. Uh, that's a kind of idealistic philosophy. But in the real world, sometimes we have to make tough decisions. We have to, you know, we have to fight the wars. Basically, what, you, you, you know, you, sometimes you, you have to do terrible things. I mean, I mean, Kirk says in Patterns of Force, he describes Nazism as he said it was brutal and perverted. It had to be destroyed at a terrible cost. And I suppose that's the kind of the the question that kind of lingers over that episode, maybe is, you know, is it sort of suggesting that her, that, that I suppose that her pacifism was at fault because it caused nazi germany to to win the second world war which on one level is sort of what we're being told 
is what happened or is it more just kind of the butterfly effect and you know one thing here has an unpredictable effect and it's not really possible to make a value judgment on that it's more just recognizing that history happens in strange ways and and you know surprising events can ensue from from one thing leading to another yeah and and i'm wondering is you know is it sort of is an episode like this and if if that commentary is the case you know that, that ellison wasn't happy with of suggesting that the pacifist element wouldn't really, you know, the peace movement element wouldn't really get you anywhere in the long run. Is that the legacy of, of Roddenberry and, and, you know, Dewan and Kuhn and all, all of these guys and Justman and all the things they went through, you know, which, you know, from our distant viewpoint, we can't possibly imagine what, what that was like, you know, growing up, you know, long, long after this, you know, our grandfathers would have served in the war. You know, we can't imagine it as much as we, we learn about it and we, we talk about it. Is that the legacy of it? Is Did they come out of the war thinking, well, you know, the ends justify the means. You have to make these hard choices. And even though Star Trek's a very progressive vision of the future, and, you know, as, as we talked about in the last episode, you know, Roddenberry had a very sort of utopian idea and he wanted all these different races to come together and, and be forged ahead, you know, and think bigger than, what, than the kind of conflicts we did. But he's ultimately the message that they couldn't quite escape the idea that... You know, there is an inevitability in war, even despite the fact that Star Trek is all about trying to look past our own human flaws in a way. Absolutely. And I suppose that this idea of, you know, that, that they got they got there in the end, in a sense, you know, in the future, everything is that it doesn't need to be like that anymore. I mean, when Spock says she had the right ideas, but the wrong time, they're the right ideas for the 23rd century, but they were the wrong. That, but I suppose that's what he's saying. They were the wrong ideas for the 20th century. And I suppose, you know, coming from someone uh, or for, for an audience, you know, 20 years later, who are embroiled, the, the country's embroiled in another uh, war, which is very much less obviously morally justified than the second world war you know that maybe that is quite a statement it is a it's a provocative statement in a sense yeah and it, it's it maybe it's a statement that further grounds the original star trek in, in its time you know in that sense in that you have to think of the wider you know real life political events going on the the wider you know 60s kind of movement to think of it in those terms and it's it's interesting to look at it from that perspective really it's interesting as well i think that you know we see i mean you, you say you know this is city on the edge forever is an episode about the second world war and it is in a sense because that's the the key historical event that that this break in the timelines hinges on but it, it's kind of also typical in that it doesn't actually engaged directly with the war and in some ways um although star trek is fascinated with the second world war it never quite treats it head-on either it deals with it allegorically so even patterns of force which is the most kind of blatant it is essentially an allegory you know it's happening on another planet they they they, they, their setup is is a kind of replication of nazi germany but they're not going back in time to nazi germany you know another episode we we could talk about is the conscience of the king which deals with an instance of genocide a kind of holocaust in a sense but again that that's dealt with in the kind of star trek allegorical sense city on the edge of forever they actually go back to a time that isn't you know experiencing the war it's sort of safely before the war but it's it's going to affect it and even in later star trek if you think about you know the episodes that we talked about voyager and enterprise you know the voyager episode it all takes place on the holodeck the enterprise episode it does take place on earth but it's in an alternate timeline and that timeline gets kind of wiped out by the end of the episode so it's striking in some ways that, um, you know, given that Star Trek does do time travel stories, I mean, they go back to other time periods, and given that they're so fascinated by the Second World War and the iconography of the Second World War and the kind of stories that you can tell there, that they always find a way of skirting around the issue some 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 way by kind of making it safe by actually, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of about the Second World War, but it's not quite daring to present it. Possibly because it's still raw, you know. And, and as I, I worry... Duncan, and I'm sure you do as well as as a, a lover of history, that the messages of of the of the war are becoming increasingly lost these days, and the the legacy of the war is becoming increasingly ignored. But the it is it it has been raw throughout the last sixty seventy years, and I think that there's always been that element of if you hit it head on. You know what are you gonna what are you gonna find? How many people are you gonna offend? Are you are you gonna prevent a country from showing your episode for thirty years? You know, are you going to are you gonna alienate a lot of your fan base because of because you're maybe touching a little bit close to home? So that's possibly why Star Trek does always skirt the edges 
without completely mm. ignoring it. And we see that as well with, I mean, you, you know, in our lifetime, something like 9-11. I mean, obviously, you know, maybe in a future episode, we'll probably come back and talk about how Enterprise dealt with 9-11. And it's interesting the way that obviously they they ran the Zindi story, which is a big kind of 9-11 story. Before that, there were a few sort of tentative gestures in that direction. But around that time, you know, a lot of TV programmes obviously felt this responsibility, they felt this a huge event in in the world in world history had taken place and they had to find a way to reflect that and they weren't quite sure you know they're sort of feeling their way how to respond to it how best to incorporate that within their own within their own program and you know i remember there was uh you know in comic books there was a discussion about you, you know how would superman deal why wasn't superman there to stop 9-11 do you know what i mean and this kind of like how do you kind of reconcile some an historical event which is so kind of cataclysmic and so you know real in the real world in a sense that impacts so many people with these fictions that then try to find a way of of sort of incorporating it in some way but without without it seeming kind of insensitive and without it seeming you know obviously if an enterprise they'd literally gone back to you know to 9-11 as a time travel story i think people would have found that very upsetting they would have found that very difficult but obviously they found a way in the kind of traditional star trek allegorical way of, of telling a story that kind of shone a light on that in certain kind of allegorical ways in that in that tradition and, and maybe that was the closest that we saw to to patterns of force for for people who'd lived through the second world war yeah and i, th- I think they they never really got closer as we've said and i think it is part of the the legacy in star trek of those people who lived through it really and it's it's been really interesting to to talk about it and to and to think about it and to explore a little bit of what these what these men went through really which was uh something that as i say is so distant for us now it's it's incredible that they went through it they survived it and they were able to bring a lot of these experiences into what they would later create, really. And just worth, you know, remembering when, you know, you see James Dewan on script, you, you know, I mean, the, the, the Star Trek is, as much as it's lofty and idealistic and it's this utopian vision of the future, it is also a military story. You know, they are in a command structure. They are in a, you know, a version of the Navy in space, essentially. And it's kind of interesting to think that many of the people who who worked on it, you know, had that background um, and had that military background. They, they knew what it was like to, to go through the kind of boot camp, to go through the training. They knew what it was like to follow orders. They knew what it was like, you know, in James Dewan's case, to kill someone um, and to almost be killed yourself, you know, and in Gene Roddenberry's case, to fly dangerous missions where your, you know, your, your plane or your spaceship is, is on the point of breaking apart because it's being so you know tossed around by the forces of of nature around it that it's encountering it gives you a different perspective in some ways on these things if you recognize that as much as these are fantastical stories as much as these are fictions you know for some of these men they they tied in quite closely to to real lived experience uh to, to things that they've gone through themselves and and that that must have fed into it one way or another yeah absolutely well, it's been fun talking about the Second World War and the men of the Star Trek universe who, who served in that conflict in our own universe. But that isn't the only thing we've been talking about this week on Trek FM. So here's a look at some of the other things you might have missed on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. I bet the transporters were invented by Amazon as a way of delivering... Products to I was that totally going to say it's like Amazon groceries would be like, yeah, I don't have to be there, but it can come like beam to my port. It's like order there it arrived right there. You know, That's like, right. Like you've got a little Amazon dot next yeah. to the toilet. And you just tap it and then toilet paper materializes <laughs> right there. Standard orbit. Every fan takes what they want, what works for them, what complements a story, a series, a show, a movie, and that can be in their heart, in their mind, the canon as in like, well, you know, I love it, it makes me feel good about those characters, the story, so, so I believe it, or if you don't, for one reason or another, do you say, well, for me, I'm just going to pretend that didn't happen, or it doesn't connect to the part of the universe that I like. To the journey! Wait, is, you're saying it's like matter and antimatter when they uh, interact? They yeah, it's like costume and non-costume. So cost, costumes and non-costumes annihilate each other yes. in Voyager. <laughs> exactly. It's how the universe is going to ultimately be destroyed due to the interaction of naked people and people wearing clothes. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, 
or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the large conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended, all right.